The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 32 The Detective Drama Life is infinitely stranger than anything which the mind of man could invent. We would not dare to conceive the things which are really mere commonplaces of existence. If we could fly out of that window hand in hand, hover over this great city, gently remove the roofs, and peep in at the queer things which are going on, the strange coincidences, the plannings, cross-purposes, the wonderful chains of events, working through generations, and leading to the most austere results. It would make all fiction with its conventionalities and foreseen conclusions most stale and unprofitable. Arthur Conan Doyle, The Complete Adventures of Sherlock Holmes Detective drama is all about finding the culprit of a particular crime. The plot often follows a specific pattern. 1. A crime is committed. 2. A detective starts investigating the crime. 3. The detective comes across an obvious suspect, someone who seems to have had motive and means to commit the crime. 4. The detective discovers the obvious suspect couldn't have done it. The suspect may have an alibi, or they could be ruled out otherwise. For example, a mother and child have been murdered, and the corpses have been destroyed by arson, and the evidence reveals that the fire was started at a specific time. But the apparent suspect, however, has an alibi, such as shooting the shit at a gas station with an old buddy over a hot cup of coffee at the time the fire began. The detective then finds out the real culprit was someone unexpected. For example, it can be someone who seemingly didn't have any reason to commit the crime until the detective uncovers said reason such as a dispute over money, sex, or someone seeking revenge. This formula is typically used in fair play whodunits and other mysteries which involve several suspects. The apparent suspect functions as a red herring, and the story often culminates with a summation where the unexpected culprit and the reason they committed the crime are revealed. Writers like to use the above formula because it adds an intriguing twist to the story. Discovering the culprit becomes an exciting puzzle instead of the detective simply finding the number one suspect and arresting them. However, this trope has become so common that the audience is now used to it, which means they expect the real culprit to be someone else than the obvious choice. In most cases, the twist is also spoiled by the format. If a detective show lasts 45 minutes, and after the first 15, the detective already appears to have caught the guilty party, it's almost certain the real culprit will turn out to be someone else. Sometimes writers like to play with audience expectations and subvert the trope as a meta-twist by having the detective dismiss the most obvious suspect and go through others, only to discover later that the person initially suspected was guilty after all. This is usually accompanied by some unexpected reveal explaining how the obvious suspect appeared innocent. To use the example above, 
The murder was covered up by a fire that was set between 9 and 9.30 a.m., and the detective rules out the apparent suspect because they have an alibi. It may later be discovered that someone had lied for them about the suspect's whereabouts at the time, and that they were the murderer after all. However, this basic trope remains most common. The most obvious suspect is revealed to be innocent, as usually, the least obvious one is guilty. Within this circumstance, the following are most basic type of tropes. Straight, Donna and her daughter Justine were murdered. Her boyfriend Rod was often in the apartment and even stayed with Donna the night before the double homicide. However, Donna has also been seeing other men. But though jealous, Rod is revealed to be innocent. And Donnie, a furniture delivery man, who seems to have had no other relationship with Donna other than recently delivering a couch, is revealed to have murdered her for refusing sex with him. Exaggerate. Again, Donna and Justine were murdered. Her husband John, whom Donna had recently separated from, maintained a strained relationship throughout the troubled divorce for the sake of their daughter Justine. John was abusive, often violent, and would lose his temper at the drop of a hat, and statistically there's a 61% chance the husband committed the murder. Still, John is revealed to be innocent. The real culprit is a seeming stranger who turns out to be an alcohol and drug-fueled sex maniac with a hatred for women and a streak of violence. Downplayed. Donna and Justine were murdered, though separated her husband John secretly saw another woman, a relationship he hoped Donna would not discover, even as he had harassed her for herself dating other men. John gets the life insurance money after the death of his wife and daughter, but nonetheless, the furniture delivery man with a lengthy criminal record is found guilty. Sure, John was guilty of being an asshole, but not the asshole who killed Donna, nor his daughter. And being an asshole is not alone a crime. Justified. John was framed because he had the most obvious motive. Inverted. Donna and Justine were murdered. Her husband, John, got all the life insurance money and was revealed to be guilty. Subverted. The police proved Donnie's alibi of drinking coffee with an old buddy at the gas station was false, and he was revealed to be guilty after all. Double subverted. Policemen were also mixed up in the plot. They were out to get Donnie and put him behind bars any chance they got. Or, while John had, in fact, attempted to kill Donna and his daughter, another murderer had finished them off beforehand by happenstance. This plot has zigzagged. Since John was innocent of the crime, though he had been planning to kill Donna, it's just that the other murderer got to her and his daughter first. Enforced. The writers make John the obvious suspect, a red herring, and provide possible fuel to prejudice John, abusive behavior, an obsession with money, possessiveness, controlling, and boiling over with insecurities and the rage that accompanies. But there is the apparent issue that if John were the actual guilty party, the story would run way too short. Lampshaded. I knew you were innocent, but you should have taken care not to become suspect number one. Disgust. So many clues point to John that I believe somebody's framing him. Conversed. How's it going? Or, oh, the wife and daughter have been killed and the husband collected the life insurance money. He was having financial problems and he was abusive. And, do they honestly believe we'll think John was guilty? Implied. John was immediately arrested for the murder. While arrested, he insistently attempted to explain how it was just an unfortunate coincidence. 
in Vogue, John realized his own motives to kill Donna would look quite strong, so he needed somebody else with an ostensibly stronger motive to be seen as having done it, such as a sex-crazed furniture delivery man with an obsession for Donna. Exploited, John used this incident as an alibi for a later murder he would also commit. But let's pause there, as these tropes veer far off into the realm of fiction. What happens in real life when the obvious goes toe-to-toe with the least obvious? I will refer to this circumstance as suspect versus prospect. A suspect would be a lead that looked like they fit the profile for committing the double homicide, while nothing else may yet be known about them. Conversely, a prospect would be a lead that the investigators already know something about, such as those who had been in previous contact with the victims. However, regardless of who may have actually committed the crime, the most or least obvious, a prime suspect or an unsuspecting prospect, when deciding whether there is enough evidence to charge, police and prosecutors alike must consider whether evidence can be used in court and is reliable and credible. If there is no other material that might affect the sufficiency of evidence, equating that there is enough satisfactory evidence to provide a realistic prospect of conviction against the defendant. The challenges present should be more than apparent when it comes to weighing a potentially innocent suspect with an overwhelming amount of prejudicial evidence and a potentially guilty prospect who, according to evidence, seems, well, not too obvious a killer. Depending on the amount of desire and pressure to reach a guilty verdict, whether that is professional, communal, or familial forces of motivation, priorities can subtly rearrange, resulting in prosecutorial tunnel vision, even railroading an innocent defendant to the degree that they go down for the crime and face a death sentence they did not deserve. In moments like these, justice takes a backseat, and a sit-in, such as a scapegoat, takes the rap in the name of justice to pacify such professional, communal, and familial needs. This is a case of prioritizing myth over reality. The legend is that evil is ethereal, a mere spirit that, within its own darkness, does not necessarily possess a specific body, but can shapeshift and move freely through the physical realm, taking on any body, form, or shape it may desire, until someone, anyone, most likely the most deserving in the eyes of reputation, is specifiable to serve as the vessel in which evil shall be symbolically banished from the community to restore a sense of safety and normality in the hearts of humans who have this instinctual need to mythologize the idea of civility, to sleep at night, even if the real killer gets off scot-free. But what of that shattered reality left in the wake of panic and desperation? What of motive and prospect? And what or who meets the criteria for scapegoating? Let's begin with an early morning telephone call between the lead investigator on the case, Canton Police Sergeant David Ayers, and Donna Tompkins' sister, Miss Mary Amakuchi. Mary first stated that she knew all about Terry Haynes, how his and Donna's relationship quickly fell apart after a horrible argument, and that around the same time her sister Donna had met a guy at church. She said she felt that Donna really liked this guy and believed his name was Rod Franciscovich. Mary then told Sergeant Ayers that she had recently asked Donna how things were going between the two, and that Donna had told her a long and challenging story, one in which Donna had believed Rod had accidentally impregnated her. Donna was in a panic, 
With the weight of the divorce and her horrible dealings with her husband John, many of which were over their daughter Justine and the support John was not providing, the last thing Donna wanted or needed at this stage in her life was another child to support. To say that Donna was distraught would be an underestimate, Mary stated in so many words. Already struggling to keep afloat, Donna was devastated and treading water, and Mary added that John was unaware of any of it. Not that she was starting to get serious with Rod, and certainly not that she may be pregnant. But Mary also noticed that there may have been some other aspects to Donna's relationship with Rod that were a little off, unsettling even. Mary said that Rod, who had two kids of his own from a previous marriage, had been reprimanding Donna for not disciplining three-year-old Justine enough, and that Mary had found it odd that Donna, in fact, had begun to take a stricter approach to punish the little one. Mary stated, Donna went from very little discipline to somewhat of an extreme. That same day, Canton Police Detective Marty Bowden and State Police Special Agent Larry Nickel spoke with Rod's roommate, Scott Roop. Scott told investigators that sometime last fall, Rod had told him he met a nice woman at the bank and that her name was Donna. Rod had told Scott he was interested in the woman and that he wouldn't mind going out with her. Scott then stated he decided to call this lady, Donna Thompson, who worked at the National Bank. Scott called her up at the bank and told her that she had a secret admirer, and during this conversation, Scott told Donna who her admirer was, in fact Rod from church, and Donna began to open up to Scott about many of her private affairs, her mother's illness and death, and her grueling divorce from John. Scott told the investigators that he felt a bit overwhelmed by her willingness to lay out so many intimate details to a virtual stranger. But Donna seemed interested in Rod, he said, and soon the two started dating, and Donna even brought her little one over to the house. And Scott remembered taking pictures of Donna and Justine somewhere around Christmas time. He said that he and Rod had helped Donna move into her new apartment on South First, and that recently, Donna had begun staying over with Rod at the house. Investigators then asked Scott about the night before the fire and the murders. And Scott recalled that on Tuesday, January 12th, he, Rod, and Rod's brother Anthony sat around the kitchen table talking. He said the TV was on, a program like Wings or the Discovery Channel. And no, he said, the stereo was not on when asked. Scott said that at around 10 p.m., Rod received a telephone call and that he left the room to speak privately for about 15 minutes, but that he was not sure to whom Rod was talking to. He said I was drinking whiskey and coke. Anthony was drinking coffee, but I don't remember what Rod was drinking. He said that Anthony, who lived directly across the street, went home around 10.30, and that he and Rod sat up until around 1 in the morning before Scott went to bed in the basement. I'm not sure when Rod went to bed, he said. His bedroom is upstairs on the second floor. He said he had slept in the following morning, didn't get up till around 11 a.m., and stayed in the basement until around 1.15 when he heard voices upstairs. Rod's truck was running in the driveway when Terry Haynes arrived. I heard the two talking, but I couldn't hear exactly what they were saying, except that Terry said something about seeing bodies being carried out of an apartment. And let's get together sometime and get some coffee. As I was coming upstairs, Terry was leaving, and I heard Rod calling into work saying his girlfriend and her daughter had just been killed in a fire. Scott said the two, he and Rod, then got into Rod's Nissan truck and drove by Donna's. As we pulled up, Rod started crying and got really upset. And he told me that last night on the phone, Donna had told him she had just received an upsetting letter from her aunt. And I remembered that on Tuesday during the day around noon, Donna had called the house looking for Rod, but he wasn't home at the time. I think he was at work. Two hours later, the investigator spoke with Rod's brother, Anthony, 
Anthony first stated that he had spoken with his brother before speaking with them, the officers. He said that Rod had mentioned to him that they, the police, already knew everything he, Anthony, might know. He said he had met Donna three or four times and that she seemed like a nice girl, and that the last time he had seen her had been the Sunday before the fire, January the 10th. He said Donna had her little girl with her. Both were dressed up real nice, nice clothes, but the little one was cranky and tired and throwing a fit. So I left and went back across the street to my house. He then mentioned that he and Rod had gone to Walmart for fabric softener that night, the night before the fire, January the 12th, but that they drove there and back separately. The investigators then asked Anthony what had occurred the evening after returning from Walmart, and if anyone else was present. Anthony said that he, Rod, and Scott had hung out in the kitchen talking and watching TV, and that Rod had made him a fresh pot of coffee. And that Rod then received a telephone call from someone, and he went into the other room to talk. Rod later told me it was Donna calling to tell him that Rin and Stimpy was on TV, adding that the two had spoken on the phone for five to ten minutes. And then, when he returned to the kitchen, he seemed normal. The same, he said. Anthony said that the TV was on and the stereo was playing, but the volume on the TV was down. And when asked what they had been drinking, Anthony said, I was only drinking coffee, and Rod was drinking a screwdriver, vodka, and orange juice. And I don't remember what Scott had been drinking. He said he thought his brother had been off work that Tuesday, and recalled seeing both Rod's and Scott's car in the driveway the following morning around 7, 7, 10 a.m. Investigators decided it was prudent to conduct a follow-up interview with Rod and invite him to the Canton Police Department. As Rod sat down in the interview room with Detective Bowton and Special Agent Kenneth Ketzer, Detective Bowton asked Rod what his thoughts were about who could have killed Donna, and Rod said that Donna had been concerned about her husband John, and that she had also been seeing Terry Haynes, who had been very jealous of his and Donna's relationship. Terry used to call Donna from the Elks when he was drunk, and he would curse her out, but I can't really think of anyone else, he said. Investigator Boten then cut to the chase, asking, When was the last time you had a sexual encounter with Donna? And Rod said, First, I need to clarify a mistake I made in the previous interview. Go on. I had previously said that the last time we had sex, me and Donna, was on Saturday the 9th. We actually had sex on Tuesday the 7th, and I mistook Monday night and Tuesday morning for Saturday. We actually had sex on the night of the 11th and the morning of the 12th. You see, on Monday the 11th, Donna called me up at work and invited me to come over that night when I got off. We usually close around 9 p.m and I leave Peoria around 10, 10, 15. And that night I got home around 11, got something to eat, cleaned up, took a shower, and then headed over to Donna's place around 1.30 in the morning. Which would have been Tuesday the 12th? Correct, said Rod. Did Donna usually keep her door locked? Did you knock or just let yourself in? Donna almost always kept her door locked. And I used the key she had given me to let myself in because she was already in bed and I didn't want to wake her. And where had Donna been sleeping? On a pull-out sofa bed in the living room. Can you explain the sofa bed in a bit more detail? Well, Donna had a one-to-one and an egg carton type foam mattress on top. Justine was sleeping in her bed in the back bedroom. So what happened when you arrived? I undressed, crawled into bed with Donna, and... What had Donna been wearing? Nothing, maybe panties, but she usually slept in nothing. Nude? Yes. And then what happened after you crawled into bed? Well, she woke up and we talked for a while. We probably smoked a cigarette or two, and I'd say we made love at around 2 or 2.30. Vaginal? Yes. And had you ejaculated when you had vaginal intercourse with Donna? I did not. No, not inside of her. She didn't want me to. So I asked her if she would, you know, perform fellatio? Yes. And did you ejaculate? I did. In her mouth? Yes. Why did Donna not want you to ejaculate in her vagina? Well, she hadn't used any birth control. She usually used spermicide. Can you explain that a bit better? 
It's a gel she applies with a syringe type thing. And what happened after you ejaculated? We went to sleep. And the following morning? Donna woke up at around 6, 6.30 and she went to work around 8. Did Donna say anything to you before she left? She woke me to tell me she was leaving a spare key on the sewing machine. And I saw it when I woke up a couple hours later and made coffee with the coffee maker I had given her for Christmas. It was automatic. What time did you depart Donna's? Around 10, 10.30 I'd say. And then what did you do? Where did you go? Well, I had Tuesday off, so I, I just went home. Did you hear from Donna that day? Any phone calls? No, not until that night when she called me at home. I was drinking screwdrivers with my brother and roommate Scott when she called. She told me she had bought some schnapps and a bottle of Canadian mist after work. She said she was drinking the schnapps with apple cider when we were on the phone together. And is it normal for Donna to keep alcohol in the house? No, it was not normal, but I'm sure she bought the whiskey for me because she knows I like it. Was it unusual for Donna to have the extra money for alcohol? No, Donna never seemed to have money problems. So go on and tell us more about the evening of the 12th. Well, my brother went home after I got off the phone with Donna, and me and Scott stayed up until around 1 or 1.30 in the morning. Isn't that the time you'd usually go over to Donna's? Well, yes, but that night I just went to bed. Are you certain? Yeah, I mean, I would have had no reason to go to Donna's that night. And Wednesday morning? I woke up around 10, I didn't go anywhere. I was there all morning. Scott too, actually. I may have run across the street to pick up some laundry I'd left at my brother's house. And then I came back and started getting ready for work when Terry Haynes walked in. He didn't even knock. He walked in and said Donna is dead. He said he was on his way back from Lewistown when he saw the fire at Donna's house. And he said he wanted to stop by and give me his condolences. Officers made eyes. And then Detective Boaten asked if Donna had a kerosene heater or an oil lamp that he knew of. Rod said he was unsure, adding, but Donna did smoke in bed. The detective then asked about Donna's purse. Rod said it was an average sized purse, approximately 10 inches long, green and red, with a zipper on top, and that she usually kept it on the sewing machine, which he referred to as a catch-all place. Detective Boaten then asked Rod if he'd be willing to submit to being fingerprinted and provide a blood sample and a polygraph examination. Rod agreed to the blood test and signed a consent to search form to give blood. But I have to think about the polygraph test, he said. I'll, I'll think about it and let you know. The detectives then walked Rod to the booking room to have his fingerprints taken. On the following day, Detective Boaten met with Rod at Graham Hospital in Canton. Rod allowed hospital personnel to collect two tubes of blood before the detective returned the samples to the department and placed them in a refrigerator located in the evidence vault to be later sent to the State Police Morton Crime Lab for processing. Later that day, Detective Boaten called Rod concerning the polygraph test. Rod stated he would, in fact, submit to the exam. Detective Boaten scheduled an appointment for February 4th at the same crime lab. Rod said he was familiar with the lab in Morton and agreed to meet the detective there. But Detective Boaten received a late afternoon call from Rod, two days later informing him he had been thinking about the polygraph exam. I spoke with an attorney, Jim Elson, he said, and I've decided I should not submit to the exam, not at this time at least. Mr. Elson advised you not to? No, well, he actually suggested I should, but then he decided I am not emotionally stable enough right now. As the autopsy reports were received for Donna and Justine, the presence of spermatosa in the vagina of Donna was indicated, and as a result, the voluntary blood samples submitted by Rod, Terry, John, and David Haynes were sent off to the Morton Crime Lab for DNA comparison. 
Results? DNA analysis shows the DNA recovered from Donna's vagina did not originate from Rod, Terry John, or David Haynes. As the investigation rolled on, Dan Carmack, manager of Chubb's Liquor in Canton, was questioned in reference to the possible purchase of a large bottle of Canadian Miss Whiskey on the evening of January the 12th. Mr. Carmack stated that the sales were not kept by brand sold, but were categorized by liquor, beer, etc. He then checked the registered tapes for that evening and found a liquor sale for the exact amount of the bottle of Canadian Mist found at Donna's residence, which had been made between 6.30 and 6.45 p.m. on that precise day, January the 12th. He then stated, We don't sell many bottles for that same price. And can you recall who was working that evening? Linda Rose. She'll be working tomorrow night if you want to stop by. The following evening, investigators did in fact stop by. And Miss Rose stated yes, she was working the night of the 12th, but that she could not recall selling a large bottle of Canadian Miss Whiskey. It's not a popular whiskey in that size, she said. Investigators then showed Miss Rose a photograph of Donna to see if she could recall her being in the store. And Miss Rose, while looking down at the photo, said, I don't recognize her as a regular, and I sure don't remember her buying any Canadian Mist. Next up, Mr. Kenneth Owens. Kenneth stated that he had met Donna six years ago while she was a secretary at the community bank in Canton. He said that he was on the bank's board of directors, and Donna was a secretary to the president at the time. He also stated that he was 54 and Donna 24 when they began dating that fall, saying, Donna liked riding on my combine at the farm. He said that things were on again, off again between them until the Christmas season, and that they called things off the following January or February. She was living in a trailer on Ash Street behind the beauty salon at the time, he said. And sometimes we'd go dancing, bowling, or out to eat. To the Galesburg Mall, I was in the process of a divorce at the time, so I didn't want to flaunt our relationship, but we didn't hide it either. Donna was a great cook, and I'll tell you what, she had the body of a Playboy model. When asked, Kenneth also stated that Donna was not wild, didn't use drugs, and was never drunk. Though she did enjoy a jack on water from time to time, he said. He stated that Donna had talked all about a farmer who raised hogs in Cuba or Ellisville, saying, We stopped dating because she wanted to go with the guy, and she eventually married him. The farmer from Cuba? Yes, I believe it was the same guy she had talked about. Kenneth stated that he had been separated from his wife for 12 years, and had been divorced for 5 or 6 that during the separation, he had dated many women, and his wife was not happy about any of them. Hell, while I was dating Donna, the wife came into the bank and asked, Where's Ken's latest conquest? Well, things fell apart soon after that, and she went to work at the National Bank. How did the officers at the community bank feel about you dating Donna? Well, they were not very supportive of the idea, seeing she was the president's secretary and all. Do you believe anyone asked her to stop the relationship? No, I don't believe so. You see, she was only making a little over $5 an hour at Community. She thought she'd do better at National. That's why she left. Kenneth said he was kind of upset when he read about Donna's death in the paper. And that he'd seen her three or four times since they'd broken up, saying, We'd say hi in passing. And when was the last time you saw Donna? I'd say over six months ago. It would have been at the grocery store at High V. I was there with my wife and Donna came up and said, Hi Kenny. And I remember she looked thin like she was sick. Investigators then sat down with Rick Lilly at his place of employment, Mitchell Real Estate in Canton. Mr. Lilly was a wealthy man, 
a decade or two older than Donna. And he had been advised by investigators that information had surfaced that he and Donna may have dated. And Mr. Lilly stated that that was incorrect, that he had not dated Donna and only knew her through the bank. I have a trusted national, and that's how we met. That's how I knew her, he said. But Mr. Lilly added that he once saw Donna at a Christmas party for the Board of Realtors, which was held at the Elks Lodge. And that when Donna finished her shift, as she had been working that event, we had a few drinks together and we shared a dance. But my wife was right there. But yes, I heard the rumors first about a week ago that we had dated, but no, it's not true. Mr. Lilly also stated that he had no idea where Donna lived until he had heard of the fire at her apartment. And no further information was learned, and the interview concluded but five minutes after it had begun. Investigators next decided to revisit a tip the sheriff's deputy had received at the Elks Lodge from a waitress while having a beer on a night off. The tip involved the name of a man officers had already briefly spoken with, a Mr. Donnie Bull. Iona Price, a co-worker and friend of Donnie's, had told the deputy that Don had recently purchased a pull-out sofa bed from Donnie, who worked at Wright's Furniture, and that she had given Donnie a key to her apartment to deliver it that she was not certain he had returned the key, and that they might want to check it out. Donnie had a reputation after all. So the investigators decided to conduct a follow-up interview with Donnie, and invited him to the station, where he sat down with Special Agent Kedzer in the interview room. Donnie, a large, imposing, muscular man with a thick mustache, was uncharacteristically shy and timid given his towering stature seated across from Agent Kedzer. Donnie stated that he had met Donna at Barbecue Roundup last fall. He said that she had been there with Iona Price, the wife of a co-worker at Wright's Furniture, Mike Price. Iona introduced the two, and that night Donna asked Donnie about buying a couch from the store. But he stated that he had told Donna that Wright's furniture was too expensive and that he had a couch that he could not get into his new apartment. I told her I'd give it to her for 75 bucks, he said, adding that after he described the couch to Donna, hide-a-bed, cotton, or nylon mattress, she agreed to buy it. He told her the couch was at his sister, Sherry Spangler's house, and that Donna did not look at it before agreeing. She called me and said the money and the key were in the mailbox. He, Russell Stuffelbeam, and David Nell delivered the couch and Stuffelbeam's truck to Donna's apartment on Halloween, Saturday, October the 31st of 1992. And that after finding the money and the key in the mailbox, they had let themselves inside. We brought the couch in and set it down, said Donnie. It was dark, so we used a lighter to see. You did not turn on the lights? asked Agent Kedzer. No, used a lighter. What time was this? asked Agent Kedzer. Around 7.30 or 8 on Halloween night. What did you do after setting down the couch? Locked the door and left and put the key in the mailbox, said Donnie. Donnie then said that Donna worked with Iona at the Elks Club, and that he believed that Donna was working there that evening they delivered the couch, but that if it was not Halloween, it was around the 1st of November. Have you returned to Donna's apartment since delivering the couch? Asked Agent Kedzer. No, said Donnie, but stating that he had talked with Donna four times since, and that the last time he saw her was at Mike and Iona Price's house. I'd see her there sometimes, and when she drove by Wright's, as the warehouse faced the street, Donna took to work. And what is that street? 
Elm, said Don. Don advised that phone records showed that Donna placed the call to Wright's furniture around Christmas time of 92. And Donnie stated that he had not talked to Donna on the phone, but had been told that she called for him. He said that they also made a deal on a leather Lazy Boy recliner, which was at his sister's house on Walnut Street. It got water damaged in the basement, he said, and the only reason he believed she may have tried to call him at Wright's was to speak about the chair. And when asked about his whereabouts on the evening of January the 12th, the night before the fire at Donna's, Donnie said that he had played cards at his home with Mike Price, David Nell, a guy named Jeff from Cuba, and Jeff's girlfriend. Jeff turned out to be Jeff Bennett, manager of the local Usco gas station. How long did you play cards and drink beer? From around 4 to 3 in the morning, I guess. AM to PM? Yeah. And Donnie said that they had made four trips to Twins Liquor Store that evening. Mikola was on sale. Cousin works there. He had cases on sale. And the Twins was open until midnight, 1230. Won $75 playing cards, said Donnie. And what happened after you won the $75 that night? I took Dave home. Dave? Dave, no. What time would that have been? 5, 5.30, I guess? AM? Yeah. And then what? Where did you go after dropping off Mr. Nell? Saw Jeff opening the Usco on 5th Avenue. What time approximately? 5.30. And where did you live at the time? Rochelle's. Rochelle? Hillmeyer. I live with her. And where is that located? 2nd Avenue behind the park. And did you stop anywhere or talk to anyone on your way home? I got a flat and changed it. A flat? You got a flat tire on your way home? Yeah. Jack slipped out and hit me in the knee. Donnie leaned down and rubbed his knee. What time did all this occur? 6.30 or 7, I guess. And what time did you finally get home? Back to Rochelle's. Took a while. 8 or 8.30 maybe? And what did you do when you got back to Miss Hillmeyer's? Went to bed. You went right to bed. Well, Rochelle's mom stopped by and then I went to bed. Did you call into work or did you have the day off? I called in. I guess you were pretty hungover that day, weren't you? Yeah. Spedros and Kedzer then asked Donnie if he would be willing to take a polygraph exam regarding his statement. And Donnie said he would have to think about it. Well, give it some thought. It surely would help out, said Agent Kedzer. Yeah, I'll think about it. Probably will, said Donnie. Would you be willing to submit a blood sample as well? Maybe. Not today. Why not today? Going up to Brewing Q. Brewing Q is a local bar and pool hall just off the town square. What about tomorrow? Can you do it tomorrow? Sure. After work? Sure, said Donnie. And the interview ended. The following day, Special Agent Kedzer visited Wright's Furniture to follow up with Donnie, this time with Special Agent Gary Smith accompanying him. The three briefly spoke out front on the icy sidewalk in a chilly breeze. Donnie lit up a cigarette and the wind whisked the smoke away as Special Agent Kedzer identified himself to Donnie. And Donnie said, yeah, I remember you from yesterday. Agent Kedzer then asked Donnie if he was still planning on giving blood samples after work. And Donnie confirmed that he would arrive at Graham Hospital between 4 and 4.30. Go ahead and stop by the station when you're off, Donnie, and I'll follow you to the hospital, said Agent Kedzer, and Donnie agreed. From 3.40 to 5.20 p.m., both agents waited for Donnie to arrive at the department, but Donnie never showed up, nor did he call to advise he was not coming. Special Agent Kedzer had no further contact with Donnie. following day, Detective Marty Bowden revisited 52 South Main Street and met with Donnie at the furniture store. Hey Donnie, why didn't you stop by the station yesterday? Thought about it, but someone said I shouldn't. Donnie, was this your attorney who advised you? Donnie shrugged and dropped his head. I don't know. I don't think I should say. 
You knew Donna, didn't you? Kinda. Met her at barbecue roundup last year, was there eating, and she asked if I had a rollout couch for sale. She wanted a chair too, but it got all wet and ruined in my buddy's basement. Tell me about the couch, Donnie. I already told the other cop about it. Can you tell me again where you were the night of the 12th and where you were before and after the fire the next morning? I told the cops everything already. Getting nowhere with Donnie, Detective Boaton then spoke with the owner of Wright's Furniture, and he learned that the owner did not know Donna Tompkins, nor could he recall ever making any business transactions with her at his store. Detective Boaton then thanked both men for their time and cooperation, and left. On January 30th, the headlines across Fulton County and Greater Central Illinois read, Police keeping lid on homicide probe. Canton officials won't comment on deaths of woman, daughter, until lab results are received. More than two weeks after the January 13th fire at 365 South First Avenue, authorities said they do not have a definitive cause for the blaze. Police have said the fire was set to conceal the Tompkins deaths, but other information is scarce. And the situation will not change until police receive crime lab reports. These do take some time, an investigation is like a jigsaw puzzle, said Anthony Giardini, director of the State Fire Marshal's Division of Arson Investigation. Authorities have questioned nearly 100 people, but no suspects have been mentioned, and additional details of the crime have not yet been released. They may have an idea, but they're not letting it out, Giardini said. The revelation that the mother and daughter died before the fire has fanned rumors throughout the community. Police, however, have not given any insights into what their investigation has uncovered. Officially, the police department had not released any information as to the cause of death, suspects, or the cause of the fire, other than that they were dead before the fire and that it was arson, Kent Police Sergeant David Ayer said. Giardini has one agent working on an investigating task force that includes members of the Canton Police Department and Fire Departments, the State Police Division of Criminal Investigation, and the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. The federal agency sent seven people to work with the task force, detecting the cause of the fire and collecting materials for lab work. Only one agent remains on the case, Bureau Agent Victor Herbert said. Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner said that without lab results and with an ongoing investigation, he does not foresee any information being released to the public. It would shock and surprise me. I don't know of anything they'll feel like releasing, Danner said. February the 6th headlines read, Grand Jury Helping and Probe of Canton Deaths. Request documents, evidence about deaths of pair. Lewistown. Grand Jury that convened here is assisting with an investigation into the homicides of Donna and Justine Tompkins, sources confirmed. Authorities are not releasing details of the proceedings, although grand juries can request evidence or documents relating to an investigation they are conducting. Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner would not say whether the grand jury is looking into the deaths of the mother and daughter, whose bodies were found in the apartment. Sergeant Dave Ayers would not comment on what, if any, materials the group wants the grand jury to subpoena. The grand jury did not subpoena in its Friday session, Ayers said. Those could come when the panel reconvenes, and Danner said they will meet again in about a month. And on February the 11th, cause of Canton deaths called suspicious. Authorities unsure what killed woman, girl found in burning home. The January 13th deaths are listed as being suspicious nature, Sergeant Ayer said. Medical examiners found no evidence of major traumas such as bullet or knife wounds to either body. And a fire set to conceal the two homicides made any lesser trauma undetectable, Ayer said. Toxicology results also released Wednesday showed no sign of poison, but indicated Donna Tompkins' blood alcohol level to be 0.054% about half the level of legal intoxication, which is 0.10%, said Ayers. 
Authorities have not said what time they believe the fire was set. Still, an upstairs resident of the apartment house reported that he noticed nothing unusual when leaving for work shortly before 7 a.m. on the 13th, before police were summoned to the First Avenue apartment at about 9.30 a.m. by David Haynes, Donna's supervisor at the National Bank of Canton, after he became concerned when she did not show up for work. Soon after police arrived, flames were seen shooting from the apartment. Firefighters arrived minutes later, but the fire destroyed the Tompkins and upstairs apartment, and two other apartments in the four-unit building were damaged. Tompkins moved into the building about six months ago after separating from her husband, John Tompkins of rural Cuba. Wednesday's release of information by police was the first since the initial announcement that the fire was an arson and the victims were believed to have died before the fire. The above plot formula is typically used in fair play whodunits, in mysteries, where there are several suspects. The obvious suspect functioning as a red herring, and the story accumulating with a summation, where the unexpected culprit and the reason they committed the crime are revealed. Indeed, writers like to use this formula because it adds a twist to the story, yet so does life. And discovering the culprit will, indeed, become an intriguing puzzle, the borders of which are arson and murder. But within this whodunit, this mystery, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I ask of you, just who is our red herring? 30 years after the fire and double homicide, on what would have been the year Donna would have turned 61 and Justine 33, long after the trial had ended, and the entrails of this haunted story were buried deep in the frozen Midwestern ground, what can we say of summation? But for the chilly words of Robert Frost that remind me, in three words, I can sum up everything I've learned about life. It goes on. It goes on. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Longbird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.